Well, in case you're wondering who this strange guy is, <coughs> I'm Joseph, and I'm subbing tonight. <laughs> It's great to <laughs> join with you. Um, thought to just have an open question period. <clears throat> um, so if any of you have questions about your practice or the teachings, <clears throat> uh, easy ones. Is that supposed to be an easy question? <laughs> but, uh, I'll try my best. <clears throat> so just to, to talk about the, the underlying question of what's the point, uh, which I think it's a really important question. It's like... You know, you're putting in all of this effort. Uh, this is not exactly a vacation. You know, and so what is the point of it? So there are two different, there are, I think, two different uh, broad ways of understanding uh, the point. One is in the realization and the experience, and this is a lot of what the meditation practice is about, contrary to how we often practice. So I think uh, there's something quite essential here. That the point of the practice is not to be getting something. You know, it's not to be getting a particular mind state, even though there's value, of course, in the cultivation of what's wholesome and the letting go of what's unwholesome. But the key element of our practice is through mindfulness to be seeing the impermanent momentary nature of things. And so the awareness and the experience of impermanence goes from being an abstraction to being a lived experience. Now you might say, why is this important? You know, to realize on, on that level of depth, why the impermanence of things. It's really very simple because if we're attached, if we cling to that which changes, we suffer. So it's, it's really simple. If we're holding on to something which in its nature is going to change, that's a cause of suffering in our lives. Whether it's attachment to the body being a certain way, whether it's attachment to the mind being a certain way, 
So in one of the groups I was doing um, yesterday, one frame for understanding how we get caught um, in difficulties in our practice. You may have had the experience sometimes of just, you're going along, whether it's sitting or walking, just being around, and there's some sense of struggle. You know, there's things, things don't seem to be just flowing along easily. We're in some kind of struggle. So what does struggle mean? Struggle means that something is going on that we're not accepting. Because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. You know, and what is it generally that we don't accept? Things that are unpleasant. Right? This, and this is pretty hardwired in us. You know, we want what's... Wa- <laughs> That's the, the ghost of IMS. <laughs> Uh, you know, we want what's pleasant, we don't want what's unpleasant. And so as long as we're held by that conditioning, we're continually trying to hold on to things or push things away, and that creates a sense of struggle in our lives. For those of you who are attached to summer, today was probably a hard day. (laughs) We can take any example. If you're attached to the body feeling a certain way, then when you're feeling discomfort, there's a sense of struggle. If you're attached to the mind being concentrated or calm, then when the mind is thinking a lot or restless, you're in a sense of struggle. And, you know, the Buddha talked about this in such uh, straightforward uh, language in terms of the practice. Most of you are probably familiar with the uh, uh, Satipatthana Sutta, the the discourse on on mindfulness. And in that third foundation, the instruction is very simple. It says, be mindful when the mind is concentrated, when it's not concentrated. When the mind is restless, when it's not restless. When it's this or it's that. It's It's not saying hold on to anything. It's just saying be mindful of whatever's there. Because in that mindfulness, we see the impermanence. Okay, so this is a little meditation instruction. The next time you feel like you're in the flow of the awareness of things changing, you know, sometimes we just get into that flow, whether it's in walking or sitting or moving about. Whenever you feel like you're in the flow of impermanence, really experiencing that, if you can remember, take a look at the quality of the mind when it is experiencing the impermanence of things. And the Buddha said, and it's certainly borne out in my experience as well, (coughs) when the mind is seeing impermanence, it's not clinging. Because (laughs) if it were clinging, we would be outside of the flow of change. And so we we can get a very immediate taste of what that mind is like, the mind of not clinging. That is the essence of the practice. It's not about having some special experience. It's about not clinging. And often in the text, the Buddha, uh, one one of the phrases that's repeated very often, liberation through non-clinging. 
Okay, so that's one, one arena of what's the point. Right? The point is through mindfulness, we see the changing nature of things. When we see the change of nature of things, we don't cling. When we don't cling, we don't suffer. So there's a pretty direct uh, unfolding there. From another angle, not from the impermanent side, but from the selfless side, whenever we're identified with any part of our experience, if we're identified with the body or with thoughts or with emotions or with consciousness, with knowing, that identification is already a contraction, right? And so we're confining ourselves through the creation of a sense of self in that very narrow slice of experience. My body, my thoughts, my feelings. And so we've narrowed our experience of the world. And as soon as there's a sense of self, there's a sense of other. with all that that entails. So I'll just share with you an example which I have been talking about for the last 50 years. And many of you have probably heard it 50 million times. <laughs> but it's one of my favorite examples. <coughs> um, the Big Dipper, uh, you know. And so are you familiar with the constellation, the Big Dipper? Yeah. So you go outside at night, and it's, pretty, it's a pretty obvious constellation. Okay, you've been practicing now, what, for five days, six days, five days? Um, so this, this is your uh, midterm exam. <laughs> is there really a Big Dipper up in the sky? <laughs> There's no Big Dipper. <laughs> <laughs> What's there are points of light, which we know to be stars, in a certain pattern. But the pattern is so seductive, right, that when we look up, immediately the mind goes to seeing Big Dipper. And there's a certain use to it, you know, as I'm told, you know, the handle of the Big Dipper points to the North Star, and if you're navigating in the middle of the ocean, like when you leave here, <laughs> you know, you can find North and get where you're going. So the, the concept has a use. But it is a concept. There's no Big Dipper up there. One of the very interesting things to notice, and you might make this experiment some night on a clear night, go outside and see if it's possible not to see the Big Dipper. Very hard. You know, we've been so conditioned to see in a certain way. But what does attachment to that way of seeing, whether conscious or unconscious, attachment to that concept of Big Dipper separates those stars from all the other stars in the sky? So there's the Big Dipper and then there's everything else. The notion of self is just like Big Dipper. Right? It's a concept, it's a useful concept. We use it to navigate and negotiate the world. But it is just a concept. And as long as we're attached to that concept and that way of perceiving, we have separated ourselves out from the totality. 
So there's a teaching by Kala Rinpoche, who was a great Tibetan master. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. So that's like living in the world of concepts. There is a reality, we are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. So that really, that really points to a very different way of experiencing our lives. And again, I want to reiterate, it's not that we give up the notion of self in terms of a relative reality that uh, you know, we rely on in many ways. But it's not the ultimate reality of what's going on. And if we're attached to the concept, then it's a limitation. So by seeing the aggregates, this is a long answer. <laughs> I'll just finish this. <laughs> you know, for many years, the teaching on the aggregates, the five aggregates, it's almost on every page of the Buddhist teachings. It's so, it's such a common part of the teaching and way of understanding what is really there, you know, what the, what the nature of our experience is on the fundamental level. So I had been reading it and my teachers would talk about it and I just found it the most boring thing in the world. Because it just sounded like Buddhist philosophy to me. You know, and the five aggregates and perception and formations, <laughs> what are they talking about? It took a long time in my practice. And this particular insight I'd like to share with you because <clears throat> as you leave here and go back in the world, but perhaps are staying connected through reading or study the teachings, the big change for me happened when I realized that these teachings of the aggregates, it's not about Buddhist philosophy. It's not even particularly, although it is in part a description, it's an instruction. You know, and with so many of the teachings, we read them, oh yeah, that's, you know, we understand the Buddha taught this, but we don't necessarily take that teaching, and sometimes it can be a single line, you know, and then apply it, you know, really investigate that in our experience. So when I started doing that with the aggregates, <laughs> it became incredibly rich exploration because it is a direct way into the understanding of selflessness. You know, that the notion of self is a concept and a useful one, but if we look underneath the concept, what's actually there, it's just the dance of the aggregates. So this is, it's quite revolutionary. You know, everything we took ourselves to be, we're not. So that's kind of exciting. Yeah. So I don't know whether that got to anything. Uh, How does the meta practice connect to what you're talking about? So how is the meta practice connected to all this? <clears throat> the meta practice works on the relative level of concepts. So in that respect, <coughs> It has a different aim. 
you know, and a different form than the Vipassana. Because in metta, we are relating to the concept of beings. May I be happy, may you be happy, may all beings be happy. So it's to understand that that is the relative level, which, as I said, we engage in. It's not throwing out the concept of self. We use it, but understanding that it refers to a concept in the metta practice, we're using those concepts of self and other and well-wishing you know, for ourselves and others in the service of cultivating and strengthening a wholesome mind state. Okay, I'll tell you a little story, <laughs> which <laughs> hopefully it's a little. And I mentioned this, I think, in one of the groups. So some years ago, I was involved in a very, uh, there was a very conflicted situation going on, you know, and I was right in the middle of it. And so there was a lot of tension and stress in, in the relationships. Um, and it was going on for quite a while, and it was very hard to kind of see, okay, how are we going to resolve this? Uh, and it got, at times, pretty heated. Um, and so I went on retreat, and this was, of course, coming up in my mind a lot. You know, it was, it was very present, a lot of thinking about it. And most of the thoughts were just justifying my point of view, <laughs> which was the correct one, of course. <laughs> but I became the lawyer for my own case. You know, and I was just over and over again, this, 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 you know, don't they see that? And, but it was kind of obsessive, you know, I just, I couldn't let go of it because the, the situation was so intense. So at the same time, I happened to be reading a book, uh, really a wonderful book, called uh, Tattoos on the Heart by Father Gregory Boyle. And he's a Jesuit priest in L.A. whose mission and work is with the gang kids in L.A. who are living, it's horrendous situation. I mean, some of these, they're killing each other, you know, and their backgrounds are horrendous. And so you see the background of why they've come to that. So it's just a lot of dukkha. And he's right in the middle of it. He's working with these kids, you know, who are, who are just involved in all of this violence. And the underlying energy of his work, and it really comes through in the book, the book is kind of a transmission of this, uh, is love no matter what. Love no matter what. It's whatever the kids are doing. It's not that he was condoning by any means, but he loved them. You know, and uh, in, in, in Jesuit language, which is not necessarily Buddhist language, you know, love them as God would love them, or as God did love them. Uh, so this, that kind of went in as I was sitting and going through all you know, my mental obsession, love no matter what. And so I started applying that in this situation. You know, and so all of the different people who were doing all these things that I felt were creating so much trouble, love no matter what. No back door. No matter what. It doesn't matter. So something quite extraordinary happened. 
an unexpected. As that settled, as that I could really feel that, you know, drop into that space. And so I would be doing walking meditation. Okay, love no matter what. And then, but, <laughs> no matter what, no matter what. And it didn't take too long until the no matter what took hold. Yeah. And what was so remarkable was I was contrasting the experience, the felt experience of love no matter what, as compared to I'm right. The I'm right felt like a prison. As soon as I, as of self and other, and as soon as, basically it was dropping into a metta space. You know, that particular quality of mind frees us. Even though we're using the concept of self to generate it, it actually brings us into a selfless space of love. Um, so that's how, that's how they work together, understanding that it is using concepts, but it's cultivating wholesome states of mind which go beyond it. Good. Stop there. <laughs> There's really nothing more you need to do. so interesting to me, you know, it's on a fundamental level, our minds are all the same. You know, the stories are different. We have different backgrounds and conditioning and all that. But how they're working, the basic working of the mind is the same in all of us. So that's a common, you know, I can totally relate to that question. Because expectation, it creeps in to our practice and is the cause of a lot of suffering. It took me a while to discern the difference between aspiration and expectation. So aspiration is totally valuable. You have a certain aspiration in coming here. You have a certain aspiration in what you want to develop in your life or become in your life. So that aspiration sets a direction. And even, and this is a word I'm not afraid to use, although some teachers don't like to use it. It's fine to have a goal. You know, a goal, in fact, the Buddha talked about a goal. There's a path, and the path leads someplace. Right? So that's not at all a problem. And that, that's the quality of aspiration. We see, you know, a possibility, and we aspire to experience it. That's very different. That, so that's the setting of a direction for us expectation in the way that I experienced it and also am using it now is when we 
when we have an expectation or an attachment for our experience to be a particular way now, that is always going to get us in trouble. Because things arise in every moment when the causes and conditions necessary for their arising are present. And if they're not present yet, they're not going to arise. So if we have expectation, if we have that wanting or grasping at a result, that's going to cause a lot of frustration in the practice. You know, because as you've probably experienced by now, <laughs> the practice does not unfold according to our desires. <laughs> there are a lot of conditions at play. If we have the aspiration, you know, and we understand the principles, so then we cultivate them and we're going in that direction, but there are lots of ups and downs. You know, where there's difficulty and challenges and then it's easeful and then periods of suffering, all of that is part of it. That does not have to impact our aspiration at all. In fact, we begin to understand that that's all part of the path. But it does help if we distinguish that from the uh, grasping of expectation of things being a certain way now. Um, so that's so I would say just to, to try to see the difference in yourself. So, you know, you can hear these words, but you really have to you really have to investigate for yourself if you can parse parse out the difference between those two in how you experience them. But I, I think you would find that uh, it does resolve that question. We can let go of expectation in the unfolding practice, and then just be there for whatever arises, the mindfulness itself in each moment is both fulfilling and um, the path to our aspirations. So the aspirations are being fulfilled even though it may not be according to our moment-to-moment expectations. concentration practice in relationship to um, insight practice. Um, my understanding somewhere in the Satipatthana, it says um, mindfulness of the breath to, um, to the extent necessary for continuous mindfulness and clear comprehension. But it's those words, to the extent necessary, that I have a lot of difficulty uh, finding. Uh, I sort of feel like I shot way one way with way too hard concentration and mm-hmm. misery. Mm-hmm. And now, as I'm starting to go the other way a little bit, uh, I, I don't, I don't, that's such a, an, um, an answer um, to the extent necessary. Right. It just isn't an answer for me. So how do I figure it out? Okay, so... I'm going to give you a two-word mantra that maybe will be the answer. <laughs> Focused relaxation. You know, and so very often even the word concentration 
in English, the connotation of it, yeah, is like, okay, tighten up and scrunch down and concentrate on the object, completely forgetting about the relaxation part. Relaxation means settling back, you know, or being at ease. In doing that, the tendency might be to relax to the extent of spacing out. Right? So that's why you need to combine the two and, and really experiment when you feel like you're getting too tight. See if you can remember, okay, just relax. But the body's breathing anyway. So we don't have to, we don't have to make any effort to breathe. Right? The breathing is a natural function of the body. Is it possible to settle into the awareness of the body? And I think we talked about this a little bit. Maybe instead of narrowing the attention on the breath, use the frame of the whole body. Just there's a body. So that becomes our reference point. That becomes kind of our primary frame of reference, the body. And then within that, we will become aware of the body breathing. But it's not necessary to narrow the attention on it. We can keep the broader perspective and still stay focused you know, on, on the body breathing. So it's really just the, the playing with those two aspects. And um, even in the Buddhist time, you know, he, the, the famous example of somebody who was trying too hard, and he used the example of tuning the lute. You know, so this is not a new problem. To tune it correctly, it can't, the strings can't be too tight, they can't be too loose. So if it's too tight, we loosen them a bit. If it's too loose, we tighten them a bit. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be discouraged by the fact that you're in the process of finding the right balance. Because as you described it, you're doing exactly what you need to do to find the balance. You know, you're paying attention. You're, okay, I'm doing it this way, it's a little too tight. Let me relax. Let me make the frame a little bigger. See if that finds the right balance. If it goes a little too much relaxation, bring a little more focus in. So I, I really don't see it as a problem. You know, it, it, this is the practice, and that's why it's called practice. You once said to me that oh, once you glimpse the nirvana, you're in the, in the full of I'm always a little uh, uh, what's the word mm, something <laughs> when people uh, refer back to things I've said <laughs> because of course I don't remember <laughs> but also it would have been unusual because divine is not a word that I typically use. <laughs> so it may have been a special moment, but however, there's something there, you know, whether I use that particular word or not. Well, I mean, in one way, it's very simple. Uh, you know, in one description of Nibbana, uh, the Buddha talked about the highest happiness is peace. 
You know, and so when we get even a glimpse of that possibility, and even before, <coughs> maybe before the actual immersion, you know, in, in a Nibbanic experience, you've probably had moments all along the way of times of greater peace. You know, when the mind's been very agitated, and then all of a sudden, shh. So just extrapolate that all the way to the highest peace. So when we, <coughs> when we have that taste, then it's unforgettable. You know, it, not that we're staying in it. You know, that could be just a glimpse. And then we're caught up again in all the patterns of our conditioning. But once we've seen something, cannot have seen it. You know, and, and so that, that uh, exercise is like a gravitational pull. So even you know, as we're caught up in all the stuff of our life, that understanding is in there and it keeps pushing us. So whether you call it the vine or peace or the highest happiness, whatever. Uh. How do you stop resisting the unpleasant? <laughs> How do you stop resisting the unpleasant? It's an important question <laughs> because we all do. Yeah. I mean, this is this is a deeply conditioned pattern. So I have another little mantra for that. I have mantras for everything. <laughs> <laughs> and it it came after years of. Uh, working with the very unpleasant emotion of fear. Like that was my main afflictive, you know, and it was sometimes it just in, in intensive practice. Sometimes it was just experienced in completely irrational ways. It was, there was nothing fearful happening, but that's just the energy that was coming up in my mind. Very intense. And I'd been working with it for a long time in Again, I had mentioned this in a group. Um, there's a very important distinction uh, which is necessary in understanding of how not to resist the unpleasant. <clears throat> and that distinction is to see and understand the difference between recognition and mindfulness. Because we can be recognizing something and think we're being mindful, but we're not. Because we can recognize something through the filter of aversion. That's what I was doing with the fear for years. You know, I, was, I recognized it, I was noting it, I was thinking I was being mindful of it, but I wasn't because I was always wanting it to go away. I'll note it so you'll go away. <laughs> yeah. Which took me a long time to realize that I was just feeding it. So at one point, I was, I was just doing walking meditation outside. It was better weather. <laughs> and something shifted in my mind. And that shift was expressed in the thought, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And that was the first moment that I had really accepted it. Right? Oh, 
All the time before that, it was, I want to get rid of it. So it's okay became a mantra. You know, whenever unpleasant things come up or things that I was resisting, it's okay. It's okay. It, it's like how you might be with a child who's going through a difficult time. You know, you don't beat the kid and you don't say, oh, you're so stupid for feeling that. No, it's okay. It's okay to feel it, whatever it is, even if it's unpleasant. So sometimes we need to coach ourselves, you know, and as we do, then that the being okay with unpleasant, that ability to be okay with the unpleasant gets stronger. You know, but it's a practice, you know, because the tendency, of course, is we grab onto what's pleasant and we don't like what's unpleasant. That's, that's a pretty deep pattern. Um, so I would just suggest, you know, just again, all of this just has meaning if you experiment to see for yourself whether there's anything value, valuable in it. Um, but you might try the next time you're feeling discomfort in the body, you know, and you're kind of being mindful, but also it feels like you're in a kind of struggle. See what happens if you can remember, oh, it's okay. It's okay, just let me feel it. Let me feel it. You might, you know, imagine you're being with a child who is hurting. Okay. Uh, and so that's how we recondition or decondition the resistance. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the nature of consciousness, picking up from the first question? Mm-hmm. It can uh, seem so conceptual, and yet how can we uh, have an understanding of consciousness as an embodied practice? Mm-hmm. So there are different ways. And different traditions. Could you hear the question in the back? Okay. <coughs> to talk about consciousness and how we can actually experience the nature of consciousness, not just as an abstraction, but to really investigate what it is, you know, and how we're relating to it and understand it. Uh, so different traditions talk about that in different ways. All of them agree on the importance of not identifying with it. But still, the first step is in getting some experience of it, you know, some really clear experience. Oh, this is, what, this is what consciousness is. This is what the knowing faculty is. So there are different ways of doing this. One way, and this is a very classical this classical insight in, in the Vipassana trajectory. And it, it's one of the first stages of insight in the unfolding path, and it's called purification of view. And what this means is that just by being mindful, you know, of the breathing, sensations, thoughts, whatever it is, we begin to see that in every moment, two things are going on simultaneously. In every moment of experience, or the flow of experience, is a pairwise progression of knowing an object. So there's the breath and the knowing of it, a sound and the knowing of it, a thought and the knowing of it, uh, whatever. All, all the aspects of our experience, it's always this pair 
of knowing an object. So you want to kind of explore that and see, is that true in your experience? So one way, and this it's a little bit of an odd example, uh, <laughs> but if you had a corpse <laughs> in your living room, <laughs> and you pumped you know, the diaphragm with air. So there'd be a movement. You know, there'd be the rising, falling movement. As far as we can tell, there's no knowing there in the corpse. Right? The movement is the same, but it's just the physical. When we're feeling the breath, we're feeling the breath here, the rising, falling. As we're feeling the breath, you might just, I don't know whether this example will serve you or not, but you know, just remember or investigate, oh yeah, this, there's the physical movement and there's something else as well. That is, there's a knowing of it. Right? And so it just highlights the fact that <laughs> there would be no awareness of anything if consciousness were not there. And to begin to see that the consciousness and object are arising and passing together as a pair. Arising and passing, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. So you might you know, direct some of your attention to just investigating the process of your experience in that way. Because it can give you a very uh, vivid experience of the nature of knowing and the fact that it is also arising and passing in each moment with the object. So that's that's one avenue of investigation. There are times in Vipassana practice, especially in the later stages, where the awareness of the body really disappears. And our experience is that of just knowing. You know, even all objects can disappear. And it's just knowing. So that, again, gives you a very uh, vivid experience of the nature of knowing. There's another method which um, it's called the Goldstein method. <laughs> so this is something. <laughs> this has no uh, no uh, authoritative reference <laughs> in the texts, <clears throat> but it's something I found very helpful, and that is. Uh, reframing experience in the passive voice. So usually, you know, we're always, we're always languaging experience, even if it's not on a conscious level. Uh, and usually we're, we're languaging things in the active voice. I'm hearing, I'm thinking, I'm walking, I'm doing this. You know, this subject and a verb and an object. So at some point, I'm not even quite sure how it came about, but I started framing the experience in the passive voice. So I was doing walking meditation, and it, it became movement or the sensations of movement being known, rather than I'm knowing, right? creating the sense of self as the knower. In the passive voice, there's no subject. Sensations being known, right? or a sound being known, or a thought being known. And in practicing in that way, uh, it had a remarkable 
consequence, going back to the question of expectation, it completely let go of all expectations because I was just there in that process of experiencing things being known and they were being known without effort. They were being known spontaneously. Just now, we'll, we'll do a little example. If you move your arm, just, you know, and then, then just see if you can get into the frame of the sensations or the movement being known. Do you have to do anything special for them to be known? No, it's, it's quite miraculous. I mean, this is the, the miracle of consciousness. Not doing anything, it's just, but if we're, if we're there, it's just being known, and it's being known spontaneously, and it's being known perfectly. And selflessly. So the, the philosopher Wittgenstein, uh, this is a paraphrase, but it's, it's something like, uh, I forget some of the words in it, but it was like, this, this is not an exact quote, but the sense of self is a, something like a fluke uh, of grammar. You know, because our grammar in language is so powerful, it conditions the way we experience things. Change the grammar a bit, and we get a whole different take on what's happening. So I found this passive voice mode very liberating. So for the first step is just settling into the ease of it. You know, you walk in again, it, it takes no effort. You just... You're walking and it's just <laughs> the sensations are being known all by themselves. So once you, once you get easeful with the ease of it, so then you could ask the question, and this gets very interesting. Okay, these sensations, the movement is being known. Known by what? So that's a really interesting question. <laughs> you know, it's clear that they're being known. You know, we have no doubt about that. Okay, known by what? So that's a way of turning the attention right back to the knowing. You know? And there is something very mysterious about it because when you look for it, there's nothing to find. And yet the knowing is happening. You know, so you're really getting right into the depth of understanding the nature of consciousness and the experience of consciousness. You know, it's one, one teacher called it the cognizing power of emptiness. And it's, it's a nice phrase. Um, so those are a couple of ways of really honing in on that aspect of our experience, and it's an important one. <laughs> um, so eventually, I expect to go home, or I aspire to go home. Um, <laughs> and sorry, go sorry, home, this is a life sentence. <laughs> when I go home, I think one of the things that I'm nervous about is how am I going to practice without all of these people supporting me? And I've been to a retreat before, and I've told myself 
I was like, oh yeah, I can sit for 45 minutes. No, like that's easy now. In fact, I'll be a little nice to myself. I'll just sit for 30 minutes a day. It didn't happen. And so um, just like trying to find five minutes yeah, most yeah. days felt <coughs> difficult. So like how do, does a person practice every day or at least almost every day um, and also like in, a, in an area where there isn't really a sound Could you hear that in the back? <laughs> this is not an unusual question, you know, and it's, it's one of the great challenges here. Conditions are very supportive for practice. You know, it's what it's designed for. And it is, it is really challenging, you know, when you go home and there's not this support. So just a few, <laughs> a few suggestions. Um, First, just to know that this is not just your problem, right? So you don't kind of have a self-judgment added on top of the difficulty because it's a common problem. So a couple, a couple of things. Um, you might try um, using some guided meditations at home, you know, in this tons of them online and apps and there are lots of ways so that's kind of sangha support that you're bringing into your home and it's really helpful and you could then do the practice of whatever meditation is being guided because they're all good it's not that you'll be making a mistake you know whether you're doing just the breath or more open awareness or metta it's all good you know and so uh, Keying into that resource would be very helpful. Yeah, and you could do a 15 or 20 minute or a half an hour guided meditation, and that would also inspire you to keep going until the end of it. So that's one aspect. The other is, and <laughs> this was a suggestion that somebody made. It was a yogi from New York who just was describing their very hectic, frantic lifestyle, and had the same problem. You know, strong intention to sit every day, but it just got... So what they finally came up with was made the intention to at least get into the meditation posture. That's all. Not, not for any length of time at all. Just get into the posture. Is there anybody who doesn't have time to get into the meditation posture? <laughs> if you don't have time to do just that, see me afterwards. <laughs> it's like we, we all can do that. What this person found, and I've, I've seen it in myself, the problem is not finding the time. The problem is disengaging. You know, we, we get so hooked in to what we're doing. And, you know, we can see it when you're working on the computer or, you know, you're 
communication device. It's so hard to disengage, just to let go of it. And that's true of kind of the flow of our daily experiences. And what this person found is once they got into the posture, then it was easy to sit for however long they sat. And it didn't have, so sometimes it might have been for a minute or five minutes or ten minutes and sometimes longer. But it was just the disengaging that was the key element. Uh, so you might try that and just, you make a commitment. But you really have to make the commitment, you know, not just, okay, I'm, every day I'm going to at least get into the posture and then see what happens. So between those two, you know, using guided meditations and this, uh, you might find it helpful. Um, so this notion of not self, um, <laughs> rather than being the liberation of all suffering, uh, just kind of seems extremely scary to me instead. I mm. have this very gut aversion to that. Mm. Um, and so can you speak to that? Yes. <laughs> Okay, so the first question had to do with, as she hears the teachings about selflessness or no self, it doesn't feel liberating, it feels scary. You know, and so, you know, I'm not sure I want to go there. Um, It goes a little bit back to an earlier question. Sometimes people hear no self or selflessness and the mind conjures up and then, and, <laughs> you know, kind of we disappear into a cloud of smoke or something. <laughs> you know, the mind does all kinds of imagination of what it means. Uh, and it doesn't mean any of that. Because, again, going back to the Big Dipper, are you familiar with that constellation? Yeah. So when you realize that Big Dipper is a concept, right, that there's really no Big Dipper there, does anything change in the sky? Nothing changes. It's as it always was, because Big Dipper wasn't there in the first place. <laughs> it was an overlay. And as I said, it can be a useful overlay. So when we touch into selflessness, it's not that we're getting rid of anything that's there. We're just seeing things as they are and still able to use the notion of self. So we're not not giving up the usefulness of it. Uh, But again, when you realize that nothing changes, your, your whole life is continuing to go on as it always was because people have the idea of no self or selflessness as getting rid of something. It's not getting rid of anything because it's it's just a concept in the first place. So then there's another question which takes it a little deeper. So if it's not there in the first place, why is the concept so prevalent? Why is it so deeply conditioned? 
because it's being the felt sense of self. Because there is a felt sense of it, you know, and that's how most people are living their lives. But if we realize that it's just a concept, then we can begin to investigate where does that felt sense of self come from? Because it's common, and we, we, we all have it. So when you look carefully, you see that the felt sense of self happens in any moment when there's identification with some aspect of our experience. There's a thought, and if we're relating to it with identification with it, my thought, or I'm thinking, right there, the felt sense of self has been created. But all it is is the, the process of identification. All that's really there is a thought. And the thought comes and goes, the thought is selfless. You follow? So, so there's, a way, there's a way both of understanding that it's self is a concept, so we're not getting rid of anything, that in understanding it, you don't disappear. <laughs> it's like everything is still there, just like the stars in the sky. Realize Big Dipper's a constant, nothing changes. We're just seeing it in a different way. And still able to use the concept. Okay, so the que second question was about, even though sometimes Buddhism is talked about not being a religion, the comment was there seems to be still a lot of faith and trust involved in undertaking the practice. So, just as with expectation and aspiration, I think it's helpful if you see the difference between trust and belief. You know, because in the teachings, you don't have to believe anything. It's all, all the teachings are just an invitation to explore for yourself your own experience, what causes suffering, and how to come to the end of that. So the trust part, or we could call it faith or trust, we need a certain level of trust, even on just the intellectual level of, oh, this, some of these teachings seem to make some sense. That's all you need. Right? It's not about belief, and there's no belief required. It's like, oh, in seeing impermanence, the mind doesn't cling. Let me check it out. Metta is a happier state than greed or hatred. Let me check it out. <laughs> yeah. So there can be the trust you know, in the path without the requirement of a dogmatic belief. I think we need to stop. <laughs> Why don't we just sit for a couple of minutes and let the words...
Thank you for stimulating my neural pathways. 